What's going on, guys? I'm Kieran Headley from the Pocket Coach Podcast. This is episode eight, and I'm super excited for this episode because I'm actually with someone I've only actually followed recently. Her name is Nicole Lapera. Did I pronounce that right, Lapera? Yes, you did. Okay, yep. perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's known as the holistic psychologist on Instagram. And I actually ran into uh, it was it was a I think the first post I saw was on relationships. I can't exactly remember the exact um ex- what it was about, but it sort of resonated with me. And I I, I sort of looked onto a page and I noticed a whole lot of uh, <laughs> I guess the best way to put it was a whole lot of truth bombs. Really, uh, mm-hmm. it was just really exposing um, and a lot of things that she sort of. I guess articulates or um, I, I, she sort of I guess um, showcases different um, just ways that the human mind works ways that it's really hard to sort of like I guess articulate yourself and then the way that she puts it is just so true it's sort of it's quite amazing just the way that she's able to actually write out those certain thoughts that we can't really um, can't really describe ourselves. So I'm really excited to um, to introduce Nicole. So Nicole, please introduce yourself. Um, just give me a, like a rough or give us a rough background of your um, your yourself growing up and your own experiences in mental health. Because I do understand that you did struggle with anxiety yourself growing up, and that's that's a really massive um, issue in this world today. So um, I'd love you to speak on that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me um, and speaking so wonderfully. I really appreciate it in all seriousness. When I hear that my message is kind of translatable, that's such a huge important focus of me to break these things down. I think sometimes these concepts are talked about in this way that isn't understandable. And I've always been about, you know, from my traditional training, which I'll talk more about in a second, but I've always been about kind of um, translating these things for the actionable, for the daily, for the practical. So hearing that it's coming across, at least in your opinion, really kind of makes me very, very happy. Is my I'm glad. Intention. So, cool. um, yes, um, I am a clinically, a, a traditionally trained clinical psychologist, meaning I went to school for a very, very long time to practice psychology in, I think, the very kind of pra- uh, traditional way that we think of it. You know, you come, you sit on a couch, you know, I, I've learned different kind of treatment styles. Um, I learned how to implement them, very insight-focused interpretations and all of that. Um, so I was on that path, and I am someone who has had my own pretty much lifelong struggle with anxiety, you know, everything from the chronic anxiety. I was that little girl, you know, always worried about the bad things that were going to happen. A lot of, you know, tension I would hold in my body, worry I would experience more or less on a consistent basis. Um, I've had my share of panic attacks. So the listeners out there who have had a panic attack and knows how much of a nightmare it can be. um, I've definitely lived that experience. I've, you know, almost brought myself to the hospital, even though I, in my logical mind, knew it wasn't a heart attack. I'll tell you what, it sure the hell feels like one. So I totally understood all of that. Um, you know, entering into my clinical training, um, I started to, I kind of branched out, I kind of say kind of very early on, I was always a little bit on the outskirts of the, the traditional model. I started to become exposed to one major concept was um, mindfulness. So I don't know anyone out there who has ever heard of this. It's kind of, you know, it's a buzzword now. It's kind of awareness in the present moment and, you know, all that good stuff. It's a meditation-based practice a lot, or that's how you'll hear it used. Um, So I discovered that really early on in my personal life and started to practice that myself and started to feel my anxiety get, get somewhat better. Um, And at that point, I started to be like, well, wait a minute, I need to be using this in the clinical room, too. So I started to incorporate that into my clinical work at the time. And then fast forwarding a couple of years, I had 
a health scare, if you will. Um, I had some really scary things happen to me. I started fainting. Um, I started having these kind of, I call them the brain glitches, where my mind would go this blankness that I've just never felt before. Scared the crap out of me. So bringing back my anxiety, right, very yeah. health related, I got nervous that something was wrong. Um, I dove into researching what could be wrong, and I started to realize how important things like nutrition and lifestyle were, how much the body um, affects our mind. Um, so I engaged or you know I, I began my own self-healing journey at that time and really did some, at this point, very deep level healing that I was not able to do with insight, awareness, and mindfulness alone. And after having lived that experience, I started to shift the way I practiced and realized that we need to be taking into consideration the body or a lot of us aren't getting better. Um, I didn't feel like I was fully better and a lot of the clients that I had been working with at the time were, were still feeling stuck. So at that point I did a major shift and I you know, started to practice as I term myself now very holistically and really taking into literally the whole person into account when we're, when we're trying to heal. Yeah, I love that. And especially just the fact that I am a fitness guy. I just love that you also dive into the gut health as well, um, which I will, I'll, actually will actually like to touch on that. Um, I didn't tell you that before, but I would like to touch on that a little bit um, in a moment. But I also, I also want to um, rewind quickly back to when you said that you did initially have anxiety attacks. Um, I want to ask, when did you start to notice that you experienced anxiety? And also, is there a particular anxiety attack or moment we we sort of realized, oh wow, this is this is quite serious, and you do something about this. Mm -hmm. So the anxiety, like I said, was there my my whole life. Your whole I don't life, okay. remember a part of myself that wasn't chronically anxious. Mm. Like so, I said, I was tense. I had all of these active. Even like growing up through childhood, like primary school. My yeah. whole childhood, mm. like I said, I was a little girl. I was very mm. scared of bad things happening. A lot of it was health-related accidents. You mm. know, dad not coming home from work, mom yeah. getting sick. Yeah. Um, I have very real, vivid memories of that. Again, not diving too much into the family dynamics, but mm. I had a mother who was very chronically anxious, so she doesn't want to admit that she was. Um, mm. She was so. Part of it was me kind of observing her anxiety, feeling her anxiety. So that is that was my being. That's all I knew. Mm. Um, I didn't know a way that wasn't worried about something. Anxiety attacks really came into, I guess, my life, I would say, in my 20s, in my early 20s. Um, I'm not surprised that that was the timing of them because at this point my mom actually had a health scare. Right. Um, so that which I had been worried about my whole life was happening. Um, and I would have anxiety attacks. And like I said, the one time was, was so bad that I remember I was in pajamas with my shoes on, laying on my bed, trying to really talk myself in or out of whether or not the emergency room was in order at that time. Again, I knew logically, right, that this wasn't a heart attack that I was having, but for those of us, those of us who have experienced an anxiety attack, it sure really does feel like one. My heart was beating out of my chest. I had this weird, like far away feeling. I just didn't feel right, and I was I was scared. Um, so, and my mom, one of her heart, one of her many chronic illnesses was um, heart related. So, of course, I'm tying this together. So now this is the heart attack that I'm waiting to have. So that was a really, really pivotal, scary one. I probably spent about an hour on that bed, curled up in a ball, wondering if I was needing to call an ambulance or take myself in. Um, and at that point, I just, I mean, like I said, anxiety was all I knew. So I didn't really, and I always knew the name of it for, I mean, obviously, once, you know, I was in high school and people started to talk about things like that. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm anxious. So I, I always kind of 
internalized and knew that I was just an anxious person, but it, it, it got scary when, when the anxiety attacks started to happen. Mm. Okay. Uh, well, thank you for sharing that. Um, so when, um, so, um, going, uh, do, do you feel like with the anxiety, was it something that you sort of started to see a change in, um, in terms of your own self healing, uh, from that point in time, was that sort of like a pivotal moment for you? Do you feel like? Mm-hmm. Um, so at that time in my twenties, when my anxiety really started to ramp up is when I discovered mindfulness. Right. Um, I started to practice it and it was helpful because a lot of anxiety or one type of anxiety originates in our thoughts. If we think worrisome thoughts long enough, we're going to feel worried, right? So yeah. for myself, I was feeling chronically worried. So learning how to refocus my attention and bring it back to a current, to my present moment mm. was was helpful to some extent. Like I said, I knew logically it made sense that that should be more fully helpful, mm. but I still had periods of time where you know my anxiety was there, it was ever present, it was bubbling beneath the surface. Um, I can me- mention too, um, that I was medicated for anxiety at this time as well. I was on SSRIs, so I was on the daily med, you know, anxiety pill. I bought the message that I am just someone who has a genetic predisposition for anxiety and there's something wrong in my brain. And quite honestly, I need this pill forever. I was just resolved that I, that I would be taking that forever. Mm-hmm. I also had a, a back pocket bottle full of the benzodiazepines, which are the things that you take when you're having the anxiety attack because I started having them. So having that in my back pocket made me feel a little bit calmer. Okay, so now if I have the anxiety attack, I can take this thing Mm. um, and I can be okay. So I was, you know, kind of fully entrenched in it. Um, But I was using mindfulness too. But like I said, it, it, it didn't take it away completely, even though again, conceptually, I thought it ought to. Um, and I think the reason why it does it, and again, fast forwarding to my health crisis and then finally healing my body, um, I think a lot of my anxiety symptoms, and I think actually a lot of those of us out there who are still experiencing anxiety symptoms are actually coming from an imbalanced body. So it took until I healed on that deep level and I brought my mm. hormones in balance and my blood sugar in balance and I removed some toxic gut damaging uh, food items that I was eating very regularly and lifestyle behaviors that I was engaging in very regularly that my body actually started to work for me and then that gave me what I would say is the whole kind of jump over the hurdle. So now when I had that and then I practiced mindfulness, now then I mean at this point I wouldn't even define myself as someone who struggles currently mm. with anxiety at all, which is mind blowing to me. And I'm obviously medication free and mm. And I love that because that's that's literally the embodiment of what you talk about, which is self healing. And I think that, like I, I, like I said to you before the call, I think that's so important. I love that you're trying to spread this message. Um, so with the um with the talk on i'm going to get to ssris in a second but i want your um, opinion on mental illness and uh the any research or science or any um any studies that you know of or just anything that you know of personally behind uh it being more of a symptom than an actual illness mm-hmm. mm. yeah so i mean i i obviously i can't think of a study completely that's, no off, no that's okay off, just like any top of mind but yeah mm. but just thinking you know so Again, like I said, mental illness, in my opinion, you know, comes from, well, what we are taught about mental mm. illness, I just saw it there, yes. is, and what we are taught about really physical illness too, illness, I could say, as the big umbrella, is it's, it's what I call kind of a very reductionistic model, meaning there is one problem, right, one cause, if you will, and then one solution, you know, and 
that gets kind of interwoven with a genetic basis oftentimes. You know, we are of the belief in physical wellness and mental wellness as well that there are genes that we're either born with or we're not born with, you know, in our DNA that then will translate to us having or not having, whether or not it's a physical disease or the psychological illness or whatever it is. That is, I think, the main message about what physical illness and mental illness is. Yeah. So would you say um, they're more of triggers really to be active? Is that what you'd say? What was that? Would you say those genetics are more like triggers ready to be so, activated? So the new mm. model okay, that I, we are evolving into, no, it's okay, it's yeah. called epigenetics. Mm. Um, and it actually does say exactly that. Yes. Oh, okay, cool. It, it, right. it says otherwise. It says two things. Mm. It says there might not be just a one thing that's wrong. So mm. for anxiety, right, it's not the chip in my brain that's not producing enough serotonin, which mm. is why the SSRI is given, mm. right? It's not the one thing with the one solution. So it's actually saying it can be many things because you're absolutely right, Karen. It is now we take into consideration all of the picture, all of the body, all of the systems that work together, but all of the, the lifestyle things and factors that we're living or not living too. So we have a new science out there that's actually called epigenetics, which says just that. Yes, we are all born with on our DNA strand, certain genes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that those genes will activate and will give us the physical or mental illness. Mm. It means that we'll have those, and then based on our lifestyle choices, that also plays a role. So I think it really evolves from, like I said, a one-to-one model to a, wait a minute, there's many factor model, and actually we have some control, because we could have a gene and live a life where it's not expressed. Mm. I love that. And I'm also, it's very interesting because there's a whole idea of it being very hereditary, but obviously that's more on the epigenetic side of things, right? So it's, um, is that what you, would you say that sort of relates to the hereditary? So the the idea of hereditary is Mm. is this idea that I am predetermined. So if I have Mm. the gene, I have it. Epigenetics says, yes, I could be born with a gene, but based on what I do in my life, Mm. then that will determine in conjunction with the gene whether or not I have it. For sure. So just a straight hereditary model I would put under the umbrella of um, of uh, the reductionistic, the old way of thinking, the kind of one-to-one. And so that's the belief of once I have this or if my mom has this, mm. I'm going to have this and I might as well not do anything about having yeah, it and yeah. take the medication for it. For sure. And there's also the fact that, um, and I find this very interesting um, when you talk about how when, when you're growing up in the first six years of life, you're in a theta brain state, which basically you're, you know, you're learning to talk, walk, um, <laughs> eat, um, all that sort of thing. Um, but you're also learning, you're also absorbing all the all the other information around you in order to live so yeah, for example my my father he's um he's been on medication for his depression for 40 plus years um and i didn't actually know that he had depression but i started experiencing symptoms of depression now initially before i actually learned a lot more about this i did think oh, okay i've got i've got the gene i'm i'm, I'm a depressed kid but what I have begun to actually understand a lot more is just noticing the subtleties in the um in his own actions and his own words, the way he uh is around um in social scenes and things like that. I'm like, wow, that's actually what I've started to create for myself, and that led mm-hmm. to me actually becoming you know this very sort of um timid kid growing up. So it was very mm-hmm. interesting to see that, and also yeah, ju- just understanding that. That just because your parent is depressed or anxious, it's not the actual gene itself, but it's actually the lifestyle that you're sort of taking on. Is that right? 
Yeah, yeah, I love that. That's a okay. great example. And so exactly, so what, what it is, is not to scare parents out there, but, but from mm. from birth to age seven, our brain waves. So we come to earth, right, or whatever you think happens, we're here, <laughs> and we need to literally learn how to be a human. Yeah, so yeah. Our, our brain works with us because it, we it, it, it we have our brain kind of fires through waves. Mm. So you'll, you might kind of, listeners might be familiar with that when we think of sleep, REM, like that's a kind of a mm. brain wave state. So from birth to age seven, we're in something that's called theta wave state, which just allows us to literally be a sponge. So what we're doing is we're observing, we're experiencing. At this point, we're in some caregiving environment, right? So a couple things are happening. We're watching, right? We're watching relate. We're watching people be people in the world. You know, live in the world. We're watching relationships. We're also co-experiencing relationships with them. So we are. That's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is our brain just as an organ, because of all of the stimuli it takes in, it has to do some, it can't, it can't just save it all in like kind of discrete little pinpoints, if you will, right? It has to make a sense of it. So it does that. So it's, it kind of, uh, it observes patterns, it makes meanings, it creates narratives. That's how we make sense of the world. So we're absorbing things and we're literally making sense of it in this brainwave state. And then we're logging that again. And a lot of it, when we think about, and for your example, illustrated that a lot of it is relationship based or ways of being in the world. That is the first time we're experiencing this and seeing this and logging this. So sometimes what we then, or we carry this regardless through life with us. Sometimes what happens is what we see or what was modeled to us or what we experience no longer works for us or does translate to a way of being that is less than optimal that can for sure be confused with this idea of, oh, well, he had it, so I have it now. But really, I saw it and I saw it consistently enough and then I became it. I love that. That makes so much sense. And um, I think that's very important to obviously touch on. And I think that um, if you're listening to this, I think if you're really stuck in the idea of I am depressed, I am anxious. Um, and also that's actually a narrative that you talk about a lot as well, um, which I'm going to touch on in a second. But I think you should, um, the, for the listeners, just definitely re-listen to that part and understand that it really is the um, the situation you're in, the way you grew up, the things that you absorbed into your own brain, um, into your own mind, have created that, that your, your own personal reality in that sense. And it can be undone. Um, which is what Nicole's actually saying, and I think that's really beautiful. Um, and actually, I'm, I'm I'm all over the place at the moment, but I really do want to touch on SSRIs um, really quickly because I know there are so many people that are on medication. Because I know for myself, I, w- I went to the doctor. This was for a completely different issue, but the doctors the doctors knew that ra- um, like it ran in the family, right? So um, you know that you want to test me for depression, um, and it was for something completely different. He was like, you know what, this could completely affect the um, you know X Y Z. So um, so he did the test. Um, he's like, okay, well you're depressed. I'm like, okay, um, I, I know that already, but like, uh, like now you're diagnosing me. Thank you. But <laughs> um, so he's like, you know, I'd, I'd like I'd really like you to you know get 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 onto some medication. I said no because I don't want to get on medication. Um, and I was taking. St. John's Ward at the time, but um, apart from that, I just didn't want to get on anything else. Um, And I want you to talk on that and whether there is a place for SSRIs at all, or if you think that they should just not be taken at all and you should just go straight to self-healing from the get-go. Well, that, I mean, I'm not, is there a place at all? That's a tough question. I think some of this is very individualized. Like I said, I was on them myself. The thing about SSRIs Mm. is a couple things. Well, so the first thing is that 
So we used to think, so what that stands for is serotonin reuptake inhibitor, selective serotonin reuptake Mm. inhibitor. So this concept of serotonin, what is that? It's a neurotransmitter. So it's just think about like a little chemical that exists in our bodies and it makes other cells and neurons fire that then have effects on our mood or on our attention or on our energy, et cetera, right? So the belief was for a very long time that those chemicals were produced in our brain and then affected our brain, like I said, in those ways, Mm -hmm. you know, energy and attention and mood and all of that good stuff. So the medication then, right, we we, um, narrowed down this belief that, okay, serotonin, this, because there's all different names. Some of you might have heard dopamine or norepinephrine. So Mm. one of them is serotonin and science research connected that to anxiety. So then what happened was the drug was developed that it, it was a low, so people with anxiety, the belief was people with anxiety had too, not enough serotonin, and that's what produced the anxiety symptoms. Mm. So the idea was, let's increase serotonin. So that's what the drug did, it increased serotonin, it worked in the brain, and then the belief was that you get relief from anxiety. So there's a problem with that, or there's two major problems with that. The first problem with that is we have now come to learn with all of nutritional and gut science that these neurotransmitters, the actually a higher percentage of them, and again, people wanna split hairs, anywhere from 70 to 90%, of them is originates in the gut right which means which implicates nutrition as being a huge critical part of whether or not they're being produced adequately or not so these drugs that we're taking that are working on the brain aren't actually working in the area where most of these neurotransmitters are being made or not being made so that's the that's the first issue with them Another issue with them again this is very contra- much more controversial and you know people debate about this and it is what it is, but the truth of the matter is, is that science, there is very little, if any, some might even say none, science out there that actually says that serotonin or that actually connects serotonin with anxiety at all. So again, you want to go into this, some people feel like this was made up, you know, to sell the pills, and I don't want to touch that. Yeah. But the majority, the, the bottom line here is that it might not actually, that our guts are important. The yeah. takeaway here is our gut is important, our nutrition is important, because mm. that is actually where these neurotransmitters are. The neurotransmitters do have an effect. They do play a role in our mental wellness, mm. um, whether or not we need the medication. Again, the medication is working on our brain. This is more important, or our gut is more implicated. Mm. And then whether or not that is even the neurotransmitter that's responsible for anxiety is highly debated as well. Wow. So again, I, I do think and people have had a lot of success coming off changing their lifestyles holistically Mm. and coming off medications and having a still a continued reduction in symptoms and like i said i am of the belief that sometimes what we're experiencing as anxiety or was producing very much anxiety symptoms are nutritional deficiencies. Mm, so I, I could even make that. an argument that some people that are maybe taking them out there, if they were to get their diet in order or their lifestyle you know, in order, that they might not even have the symptoms anymore at all, right? Am I re- recommending that you throw your SSRIs in the trash right now? Stop them? <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. Obviously, the lifestyle changes, I think this is an important part of it, mm. take a long time. Mm. These aren't the quick fixes. These are the mm. things that we do consistently every day. Our body, you know, depending on how long it's been out of balance, and how mm-hmm. much damage we've done to it takes just as much time to get back into balance. So mm-hmm. again, don't throw your medication away and think you're going to feel better tomorrow if you eat, you know, a, a nice steak. Probably not. 
Um, so again, this is the stuff that just has to be an evolution. For sure. And I, I love what you said about that stuff as well, because um, I think not only nutritional deficiencies, but also hormonal imbalances, which can, can derive from nutritional deficiencies, yes. can derive from um, lifestyle, um, like lifestyle okay. implications and things like that. For example, I know that um, if, when males f- uh, when males go through a, a phase of low testosterone, um, if, if females go through those phases of fluctuating estrogen, they're very susceptible to those anxiety and depression symptoms. So it's very it's very, that is very common, of course. So it's definitely addressing. Oh wait, um, okay, maybe I'll, I want to address that stuff before I just jump straight onto a pill that will hopefully you know um, be the quick fix. And of course, that's never really going to address the underlying issue is it because there's the underlying issue of um of okay what's the real issue that needs to be addressed which can be addressed in mindfulness which is obviously that purification and that healing of the mind um because mm-hmm. yeah so and that's really interesting as well i never realized that there was so much um production of serotonin through the gut that's really massive mm-hmm. oh wow that's mm-hmm. cool okay so um so you would say that almost um the first thing that someone that's going through uh, their own life issues, they really should look at the gut, um, what, they, what they're eating, um, what's going into their body and that yep. sort of thing. You'd say that's probably like the number one thing? 100% okay. for a couple of reasons, not only yep, because please. of that neurotransmitter reason, mm. but because our, I mean, our gut is where our food is absorbed, right? Mm. Our nutrients. And I, I mean, someone had asked me a question once, you know, do I think, or you know, do I think a lot of people struggle with gut issues? My answer was, I think everyone does mm. because so much of, of life damages our guts. Mm. So if you've been someone, if you've been on antibiotics, um, if you eat any version of, you know, a, 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 not a GMO food or, you know, a lab food, as I call it, you know, there's just so many ways that our gut, if you're, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. If you eat gluten or sugar, these are all gut damaging things. Again, most of everyone out there can probably say, yes, I've done these things once or twice and maybe every day I do these things. So our gut, when our gut is damaged, so our gut is a very, very thin lining around it, which allows all of the nutrients to be absorbed. When we have a damaged gut, not only are we kind of, I think, you know, not probably producing the neurotransmitters and throwing our hormones off balance, but even before that, we're not going to be absorbing the nutrients in our food. So again, the, the ramifications of that are just very, you know, kind of very far and wide from not just getting the nutrients we need, our cells, our brain, our organs aren't gonna be functioning as properly, hmm. our moods are gonna be fluctuating all over the place. Um, there's just so much that originates at this point, literally in our gut and a lot of our issues that originate in our gut that we really need to. So I always suggest whenever I work with someone individually, um, we do two foundational things and the body foundational pieces, we look at the nutrition and we, we address the nutrition and we remove the things that are continuing to damage the gut, that's the beautiful part about our bodies is that they actually, they're self-regulating. Meaning if we stop doing these things, it will heal mm. and it will go back into homeostasis or balance, but we have to make the changes. Um, would you say in a healed state, so after impl- implementing something like an, eliminate, an elimination diet for a period of time, um, you're in a healed state, um, like or once you've reached that healed state, however long that might take, obviously it's very individual depending on how, how much damage there is, but um, in a healed state, would you say it's, it's still okay to have a minor amount of gluten, a minor amount of sugar and still, um, still implement a little bit of that every now and again, or would you say complete, you need to stay completely mm-hmm. clean in order to avoid mm-hmm. any possibilities of that occurring? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I mean, obviously when we're, when we're healing, uh, my, my go-to is none. Of course. Right? Yeah. Let the gut heal. 
depends on how you're defining a minor amount, right? So can yeah, you go or should you go, you know, and treat yourself to a, yay, I made it to Friday donut every Friday? Well, you know, that's debatable yeah, yeah, because again, sure. that, you know, whether or not that's going to cause, you know, kind of uh, t- like catastrophic damage to your gut, yeah. you know, I don't know, maybe blood sugar, you know, it's going to do something. And, and the thing about the elimination diet, again, my experience though has been, once I've done that and I've cleaned myself out, I become very sensitive to mm. food. So when I eat those things, I feel it in one way or another. I become bloated or mm. I just don't – my energy drops. I just don't feel good. Mm. So I think that there's there, there can be an argument made that you might not want to be even indulging in those things. Mm. Um, so I think that's part of it. But – I mean, then there's a whole other argument where there's this concept that's called hermesis. And essentially, it's the belief that some low level of stress on the body, you know, is okay. So thinking back to our ancestors, you know, might we have eaten a berry or something that didn't sit right? Yeah. Mm. Would we die? No. Our body would self-regulate. We might feel sick and crappy, just like I do. I know when I eat some things that are off my diet for a little bit, but then my body heals up and I'm okay. There's some belief out there, you know, that a little bit of that stress is okay so Mm. like i said can i make can you make an argument that gluten every now and again like and i'll admit it i I have sugar every now and again but it's literally Mm. every now and again you know might that small amount be okay for me it might it might just stress my body enough you know i might feel somewhat of an effect of it but if it was worth it it was worth it in my mental mind and then i keep it moving so again depends on how much you're defining a little bit Mm. um and like i said it depends on what the actual byproducts are because some things i eat that i cannot even eat a little bit of now because they, I don't feel good at all. Or I wouldn't want to eat a little bit of it, I should yeah, say, because yeah, I don't yeah. feel good. Yeah, exactly. So definitely not a bag of lollies a day. Um, people, please don't do that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, no, I love that. Um, and I, I, like you said, I think it is very individual because it's going to be very, very individual with how they, um, how they experience it. And of course, like, um, in a healed state, you're more susceptible to noticing these uh, these reactions, aren't you, compared to an unhealed state? Because in an unhealed state, your body's so u- um, used to these uh, foods uh, being digested that aren't very digestible per se. So there's a lot of issues that yeah. go on there, right? Because there's a lot of inflammation occurring. Um, so there's no noticeable inflammation because the inflammation's already there. Um, yeah, so, Absolutely, yeah. So, and then you already kind of feel crappy maybe, so you don't I, notice the shift in feeling crappier. I love that. That's actually really cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, and um, uh, um, and now that that being your sort of number one thing to sort of go to for people that are sort of looking at um, creating a, a self healing situation where they're actually going about healing the mind, their body, um, their their whole oneness, I suppose you could say. Um, is, are there any other um, sort of beginner things that you would love to um, sort of talk about um, just briefly, even touch on, just some tips for someone that is just sort of at that point in their life where they're like, okay, I feel depressed. I feel anxious. I just want to change this. What do I, what do I start with? Where do I start? Yes, absolutely. Mm. So the body piece, the foundational body piece, that tool I always give is nutrition. The foundational mind tool I always give is a meditation or a mindfulness practice. So incredibly, hugely important for so many reasons. Um, the first of all is a lot of us spend way too much time thinking. Um, so being able to shift our, change our relationship with our thoughts. And I say that specifically because I think a lot of people have the false belief that a meditation practice or a mindfulness practice zens us out and we're relaxed and our thoughts go away. And there's actually this ideal, you know, nirvana in our heads where we're thought free, 
That never happens. We never have control over our thoughts. Mm. What we have control over, though, is how long we spend with them and what we do with them. And a lot of our, especially when we're talking anxiety, a lot, a lot of our anxieties originate because we're spending way too much time in our heads. A lot of our depression, we're thinking, we're thinking about the past and ruminating and beating ourselves up or worrying about tomorrow or next year or the uncertainty of the future, right? So meditation, developing the ability to have a space between our thoughts and us is so hugely important. I always kind of word it like this. A lot of us live under the dictatorship of our thoughts. So what they say is how I feel and what I do. And not always is that chain of events giving us the optimal life that we want. Mm. So having a meditative practice is a hugely important first step in that direction. Um, what does a meditative practice practice mean? It means sitting with our thoughts. Whether we have a guided meditation, there's a great amount of apps out there, and YouTube is a wealth of knowledge. We pop in our headphones, we sit, someone talks us through how to meditate, or whether or not we're sitting quietly in a room and we're just bringing our body to calm, and we're, we're having our thoughts happen, and we're refocusing our attention to our breath. Anything of that sort, learning how to separate ourselves from our thoughts is a huge important first step. And it's important for another reason, because a lot of the reasons why we're stuck is back to that programming that we were talking about earlier, right? All of those things I've downloaded over the course of my life, these patterns of behaving in the world that aren't helping me, all of that happens when I'm not paying attention. It's the perfect examples, right? We're driving our car home. I got home safe, I'm alive, I'm putting my key in my front door, but I don't remember that whole drive home. Who drove the car, right? My, my unconscious drove the car, my subconscious, yeah. the program that knows how to drive a car and keep me safe and maybe even change the radio channel, but I wasn't there. <laughs> I was in my mind, yeah. right? That is where our problems or our stuckness mm. often originates. So another thing that helps us in terms of mindfulness, it helps us activate the, the frontal lobe part of our brain, which is actually the part of our brain that makes us human and that has choice. Mm. So the more mindless we are, the more we're gonna just lay into that rut, into those patterns that aren't helping, the more I activate consciousness and awareness and choice, the more I can choose something new for myself. So it's, it's hugely that. important when we're talking about change for yeah. that reason too, because we have to be so conscious each moment so that we can keep making those different choices. I love that. And and would you say that's exactly why, and I, th I, th I already, already know the answer to this, but um, mm -hmm. like, is that why we always end up in the same poor situation, whether it's in a relationship, whether it's in the yeah. business choice, whether it's in, you know, like studying for an exam, whatever it is, yeah. Just that yes, subconscious yes. getting stuck in the mind. Yeah, it's yeah. just, oh. so, I mean, think about it like this. So what happens is we, our brain fires, mm. right? Something happens in our world. Our brain fires thoughts, meanings, which result in feelings, which mm. result in behaviors. Mm. This is what, if you ever, if anyone out there has ever heard of the concept of neural network or neurons that fire together, wire together, maybe you've heard of this kind of concept being talked about. That's what we're talking about. That's just literally on steroids. So each time that similar thing happens or each time I go into that similar context, like a relationship, say, mm. those things are just going to be what fires if we're not paying attention. Mm. We, however, the being that is you, that is Kieran, that is me, Nicole, whatever you guys call it out there, right? The spirit, the soul, the thing that's not that actually has much more control than it feels it has. Mm. So that's where we start to practice mindfulness because that's where we can start to refire in a different way and start to literally then be a different way 
in these relationships. But if we're not paying attention, we're just going to repeat those same, same patterns. So a lot of people are stuck, not because they're not doing the right things, but because of their mind. Yeah. Oh man, that is so powerful. And um, I, I, I've heard that it's also, there's also a known development in that frontal cortex through meditation. It actually helps develop it um, to the sense where it becomes, that allows it to become more powerful. So you would really be more conscious in your decisions and actually instead of always going for choice A, you would actually be able to go for B, C or D, of course, right? Yes, yeah, oh, absolutely. Every time you're doing that, you're firing that up. I love that you brought that up. And then each time you practice that, that makes that a little bit easier the next time. That can literally become a habit. I know when people, so anyone out there who's going to start a meditation practice, this does not happen overnight. Yeah. You don't meditate yeah, no. once and you don't, you don't get this. You know, <laughs> I, I wish. Tell people, yeah. That's my first, that's my first kind of, yeah. uh, uh, my kind of my first, like, you know, just make sure. But my second thing is this is an overwhelming practice. And I think it, a lot of people avoid it because mm. sitting with their thoughts is very distressing and anxiety provoking. Mm. So my second suggestion out there for anyone who wants to try it, start literally with a minute and two minutes of this. Oh, Don't think you're going to meditate for 10, 15, 20 minutes or a whole day of silent. Med- I mean, that is crazy. You're not going to do that. Mm. You need to start so small because it is overwhelming and because it is a practice. But to speak to your point, it is one that the more we tap into it, just like we strengthen this not helpful network, mm. we can start to literally train our brain to work differently. Mm. I love that. And um, and what um, what you said about the whole um, the whole idea of actually just being stuck and always, always just kind of going back to the exact same thing is just, it's just so true. Like it's just really what the society is that we're in today. And um, that sort of leads on to my next question, which is, um, the idea that we're really almost addicted to our problems, would you say that's obviously that's obviously part of it, but would you say there's also another reason why we always seem to want to create these problems for ourselves? Is there like a safety or a comfort in that? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So I, the first thing, the, yes, that what I just said mm. extends to this, right? Mm. The more we fire that network mm. of thoughts, feelings, behaving in the world, the more likely that that's going to be our autopilot that mm. we go into. And also, we get so used to being us, to mm. put it simply and bluntly, right? We get used to the feeling of us. So in a sense, we kind of are, we gravitate, our brains gravitate, I actually just proposed of us, to, towards familiarity. Even if it's not comfortable, it's just what we're used to. Mm. So I think there's a sort of a emotional kind of physiological, so what emotions are there? Energy that goes throughout the body, but they're also sometimes like chemicals and hormone shifts in our body. Mm. So literally we start to train the way we feel or the way we perceive our body to feel in a way that even if it's like anxious or, so for me, having felt anxious to tie this all together my whole life, even though I so desperately, if you asked me, I would tell you I so desperately want peace and relaxation. The truth of the matter was, I did not, that was uncomfortable to me, as mm-hmm. crazy as that sounds, because in that way, not only was my neural, my, my network just firing, firing, firing in that anxiety provoking mm-hmm. way, but when it wasn't, I didn't feel right. Mm. So I would go and seek and need on some level, even though anxiety obviously was uncomfortable, it was what I knew. Yeah. So I make the argument that there's literally like a biological addiction that we have to a feeling sometimes, which leads us to, in a sense, whether or not we're consciously aware of it or not, go out and seek more of that. Mm. It's almost like an emotional home per se. I remember, um, I can't remember where I heard this, but the, um, the idea of why um, 
I can't remember which state it is, but there's always, a, there's a storm um, every so often and in this particular place and it always just damages the homes, yet these people never seem to move and it's just like, you think like, why don't you just move? But that's their home. And it's similar to yeah. the way that we all sort of approach emotions is there's, there's usually like a particular emotion or emotions that we sort of get stuck in, right? And we sort of always go back to these feelings or thoughts, whatever they are, in order to create these mm-hmm. consistent situations. Like for me, um, I know I feel almost I, there was a time and time where I always felt comfortable just being shy and down, you know what I mean? And like just sort of timid and, and weak mm-hmm. almost. And that was like my comfort almost. And so it felt uncomfortable when I was this confident, powerful being. I'm like, wait, something's wrong. And then mm-hmm. I'll sort of revert back to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think, again, that's exactly then why sometimes we're, it's such a contradictory place to be. Because mm. I'm sure logically, objectively, there might have been times where you're that shy being where you wanted to be mm. that confident guy, right? But when you see yourself going out there, that's uncomfortable. Like I will always say, change, whenever I'm working with someone, there's a discomfort in just change, in doing something differently, because it does. It means that we're thinking differently, and then we're feeling differently, and then we're being differently. And difference doesn't isn't comfortable all the time, even if logically you know you want that difference, and you can imagine a much better version of your life if you were different in that maybe more outgoing way, to use your example, when you do it, it doesn't feel right. Mm. So you do, you find yourself, and then I think you find yourself in a, in a like I said, a contradiction, a conflict, because there's part of your mind that's saying, what are you doing? Go out, be confident, go get that, you know, go land that job and go land that girl or yeah. whatever it is, but you're not because you're, it, there's a, just a discomfort whenever you try to make that move forward. Mm. And that's where you, that's actually just to tie literally everything up that we've just gone over in the last sort of 15 minutes. Um, that would literally come back to, okay, if you're more conscious, you are able to make that new choice where you can, yes, it's going to be uncomfortable. If you continue to make that choice, it will become more natural, right? And that's okay. the sort of art of progression, right? The art of growth. Is that, is that correct yeah, to say? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And then we throw some other tools in there. And you know, some of you might have heard this and maybe thought it was woo-woo. I know I did until I understood mm. what it was. But then when we start to practice new thoughts, which is what mantras or affirmations are, mm. we start to say new things consciously to ourselves mm. that are maybe in opposition. So I am shy, I'm confident would be the new mantra, right? Mm. And then we start to practice what is called manifestation. Some of you might have heard that, which is where we literally start to practice feeling more confident. That's possible, right? And then we start to do that. Now, what are we doing? We're lighting a new thought. We're lighting a new feeling. And then we start to go out. And again, while it might be uncomfortable at first, we start to practice small ways of being more confident, saying hi to the barista. We do that now consistently enough Mm. Before we know it, the discomfort lessens and lessens and lessens. And then we observe the positive effects of it because we yeah. love to be reinforced. Yeah. And we say, okay, the barista smiled back. This isn't so oh, bad out here. That's and cool. then before we know it, we're becoming more confident. Yeah, I love that. Um, that's also um, diving into what you just said about like the mantras and the affirmations and things like that. That's almost like utilizing the reticular activating system, right? In a way, it's sort of like you're creating this situation where you're, um, you're, you're constantly focusing because where focus goes energy flows right so if you're focusing on these things you're more likely to produce energy towards those things and create that for yourself um that's that's i love that um with the actually this is the last question i need to to ask as well because i think this is actually very it's going to resonate with a lot of people um because we're, we're all scared. We're, we all have a fear. We all have something that we're afraid of, um, whether it's big, small, whatever it is. 
Um, but in your opinion, do you think there's sort of like an underlying fear or fears um, that we sort of as people run into um, through life or just growing up or just in general? Is it, Do you think there's like a particular fear just as a human being that that is a very common thing a very common ground yeah yeah for sure i mean i have one that comes to mind but now i'm almost going to try to talk myself out of it but i'm going to say the one that i think first um and i can maybe add the second one if we have time so the first one is uh fear of the unknown or of uncertainty right so tying this all together right back to this concept of this meaning making this pattern seeking mind of ours we don't like to not know that's essentially what anxiety is, right? I am scared about this unknowable future and maybe I worst case scenario think or whatever it is. As humans, one of the most poorly tolerated emotions is uncertainty and we do all this crazy stuff to try to get some version of a certainty in our mind. So my first inclination was to say, I think humans share, a lot of us humans share a fear of uncertainty. Um, and I think that a lot of us can identify with that and we don't like not not to know. I think once we develop, and this might not sound like it connects together, but I believe it does, once we develop a confidence in ourselves in dealing with whatever it is that might, like, that might happen to us, I think that's when that fear diminishes. When we no, no longer need to imagine every outcome that could happen tomorrow, and I know that I can just, because this is what helps me with my anxiety, and I know that I can walk into tomorrow and I will handle whatever it is. It might suck, I might not like it, but I won't crumble, I won't, I won't die, I won't hurt, my relationship won't end, I'll still continue to live another day. Um, I think that's when psychologically we are able to tolerate uncertainty more because it doesn't matter what comes, we can handle it. Yeah. It might not be pretty, but we can handle it. And another one I want to throw in there because I'm wondering, you know, I think a lot, I think a universal human um, want and need um, is a fear of not being seen, heard, understood, loved, kind of grouping that all together. And I think that, you know, is a lot, another thing that I hear a lot and that underlies a lot of issues, um, not being loved. And a lot of times you'll see this fear of failure, fear of achievement, you know, the opposite of that. And I think it really is in this basis of I'm afraid I'm not good enough and loved and see, seeing good enough loved, whatever, you know, whatever uh, kind of sequence it is for for who i am mm. um so i wanted to add that one i always kind of focus on the the uncertainty piece but i think a lot of people out there struggle with some version of a fear of of, of not being loved too i know i absolutely do like I, I can definitely resonate with that and i'm sure many people can um do do you feel do, do you think that there is a particular um do you think the strategy of self-healing itself is almost secure to those fears or is, is there like another thing that you'd like to mention that would actually help for people to overcome the mm-hmm. fear of uncertainty and the fear mm-hmm. of not being loved or being mm-hmm. significant? Yeah, I think the process of health, self-healing is is such an empowering process for, you know, we have this elusive thing, you know, we're always hearing about in psychology, like sense of self or, you know, what is that thing? Whatever it is, back to that spirit, whatever that is you, Right self-healing and engaging in all of it that comes with it you know whether i'm balancing my body which isn't easy and i often have to overcome my mind to do that and whether or not i'm looking at all of these programs and these stories and how i got there and then i'm having the tools to heal it and then i'm developing along the way an idea of me a connection with me a confidence in me i think that is inherently in that journey um i think is where where you overcome these fears because what you're doing is you're prioritizing yourself you're showing up for yourself you're gaining trust in yourself and in that you're defining yourself 
I love that. And that sort of, that's almost creating security, safety, confirmation mm-hmm. that, these, that, they, that you're going to be and okay. And that. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that is so cool. Uh, Nicole, thank you so oh, much. Um, bef- before I wrap this up, I just want to um, uh, point out that I have actually had a consultation with Nicole um, a few, actually about, about a week and a bit ago, maybe two weeks ago, and she honestly helped me so much in the idea of reprogramming the subconscious, which is kind of what we've talked about a little bit on this podcast. And she's been really amazing because she has her own practice, which you can actually get a hold of her. Um, no, actually, before I, before I actually say that you can get a hold of her, where can you get a hold of you? Like, where, where can we find you? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find me daily on Instagram at the.holistic.psychologist. Um, come follow me. We have an amazing community of self-healers over there. So people that are doing the same thing. Um, so it's very cool to be able to connect with them sometimes. I know sometimes a healing process can be lonely and distressing and all of that. Um, but if you come over, you can also watch me doing everything that I'm telling you to do and nagging you to do and talking about how not easy it is to do. Um, So that's the best best place to find me. Um, In my bio there, I have a link. I have a website at yourholisticpsychologist.com. I have a blog. I have an email list. I'm always putting together new tools and sending it out. So if anyone out there is interested, can jump on my email list um, and also can email me through that way if they are interested. Um, in working one-on-one with me but my main hub these days although i also just started a youtube channel too i saw that that's awesome i love that psychologist that's up that's where i'm going to be storing more videos i I love doing lives but i hated that the lives went away um Mm. so youtube is my new hub for videos but i'll always be posting on instagram when i have a new youtube video out so youtube instagram is the way to go the dot holistic dot psychologist awesome and please 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 guys please follow it honestly i i nearly every single day um actually no i'm gonna rephrase that every single day i learn something new from her so um it's she's really is a wealth of knowledge i highly I guarantee that you will learn something yourself. So please go follow her. And if you do think or you do believe that you need that extra oomph, that extra push, that extra little bit of help, please reach out to her. She is incredible and she she really is the holistic psychologist herself. So mm-hmm. uh, once again, thank you so much, Nicole. Um, it's been really a blessing, honestly, having you um, on this podcast. So um, I, yeah, I just can't thank you enough. So. Um, awesome thank you on. and like i said earlier thank you for having me you are awesome. helping me to spread my message i so appreciate it oh awesome okay well cheers nicole catch you later eh? awesome have a awesome. good day hey you too all right guys thank you so much for listening to the pocket coach podcast once again that was myself and nicole lapera she was freaking amazing and i'm super super blessed to have even been able to have the, have the chance to speak to her so um Please, 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 once again, do go follow her on Instagram. Also, you can follow myself on Instagram, uh, Headley Fitness. And please subscribe to this um, this podcast, The Pocket Coach, because there's some more awesome content coming out. And uh, give it a good old five-star rating if you don't mind, uh, because four stars will not get it. Nah, it's okay. It's okay. I'll forgive you. uh, It would just be nice to have five stars. That's all. Anyway, guys, um, catch you later. Have a great day. Cheers. I'm out.